Hey, you're listening to This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. TNL is a production of Young Clergy Network, and you can join us over at youngclergy.net. Today's episode is sponsored by North Street Community Church of the Nazarene, and you can find them at northst.org. Today on the podcast, we've got Reverend Eric Fry. He's pastor of both Stratton and Toronto Churches of the Nazarene in Ohio. I know you guys love background noise, so we recorded this one during a break at a conference earlier this year. Thanks for all you do for young pastors, and thanks for tuning in. my guest Eric Fry from Toronto, Ohio. Welcome to the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So the first question I ask everybody is, how did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene? The Church of Nazarene is my family. Um, it's my church. Um, my father grew up Nazarene. Um, my mom married into that family. Our family's been Nazarene. His parents were Nazarene. So um, I don't go back as far as a lot of my friends, but I'm a third generation, and it's just who I am. I, I grew up in the Nazarene Church, Sunday school, caravan, Bible quizzing, VBS, summer camps, yep. teen camps, youth camps, educated at Mount Vernon. It's just I am Nazarene because I am Nazarene. So tell me about your call. How did you end up thinking that you wanted to be a pastor? I think for me the call began with another pastor. You know, so often I and I think that has shaped a lot of my views on a lot of things. The way that God always works through, through people, through creation, through the material world. Um, God is always embodied in our lives in in one form or another. And for me, it was, it was on a missions trip. And and um, as a teenager, uh, our in our district NYI went on a missions trip to Barbados. Um, and I saw all these adults that were investing in, in teenagers and, and taking us, you know, to these crazy places and doing crazy missionary work and, and just thinking how cool it was that there were people that cared about people like me and would take a week of vacation to invest in me. Um, and and, and I, the, the moment was kind of one of the few crisis moments I remember on the roof in Barbados with some friends singing some praise choruses, uh, watching the sunset go down over the ocean and, and, and just having this overwhelming sense that I was... Uh, supposed to pour my life in, into kids too. And so my call came in the form of youth ministry. Never questioned it. Grew up, graduated high school, went to Mount Vernon as a youth ministry major. There was never a question about where I was going to go or what I was going to do. That was it. I uh, went to Mount Vernon and studied youth ministry and, and, and the journey goes from there. Uh, but that's the call. So tell me more about that process. Where did you go from, from Mount Vernon? So Mount Vernon came along, and and, and that opens a a whole other side of my faith journey, which is probably the chapter on the disenfranchisement with the church. I tell a lot of my atheist friends and and agnostic friends that that our journeys are probably about the same, um, but the difference is uh, while some choose to turn their backs on the church, others turn inward, and and we can either um, leave or fix it. And, And so... I have a lot of the same issues with the church and had a lot of the same issues with the church uh, that many of my atheist friends had, but I grew up in the church and it was my family. I, I keep coming back to that because because the church is my faith family uh, and we don't get to pick that and, and we don't get to choose that. It's, it's our families. Um, and, and so I chose to stay and, and be a part of that family, but, but that kind of began at Mount Vernon um, where 
I started thinking critically about about things like incarnation, things like compassion, uh, exposed to Henry Nouwen and in posts, you know, you know, what does it mean for the church to be incarnated in a place and have compassion on a community um, and all these great ideas. Um, and meanwhile, the church that I grew up in was moving in exactly the opposite direction with the church growth movement and incarnation doesn't matter that much. It's not about community. It's about getting as many people in as we can, selling the old property, buying new property that'll be more attractive, uh, building a bigger church that will be uh, more attractive. Um, and, and so I was really pushed into a faith crisis where what I was learning intellectually didn't match with what I was seeing um, contextually. Um, and, and I decided to go with my intellect and my heart. And it wasn't just intellect, it was heart. It was, this is what scripture said to me. This is what made sense to me. This is what I saw in Jesus of Nazareth, um, who, who took on the flesh and dwelt among us. I mean, th this, this wasn't an evangelistic effort. This was a, com a move of compassion uh, to become embodied in a person and to live among people in creation. Uh, and I didn't see many churches at all doing that and, and decided I really didn't want a part of any church that couldn't do that. Oh, wow. Um, and, and so um, got involved with some, some local ministries that fit that. Um, and when I graduated, not knowing uh, really what any of that meant, I had just, you know, unquestioningly gone to Mount Vernon, studied youth ministry, discovered while I was studying those things that the church isn't where I want to be. Mm. Um, interestingly, planting a church. Um, it didn't start that way, but um, a friend of mine and I moved into an apartment in a part of town that had no Christian presence and just started meeting the families there, meeting the people there, um, living there. It became apparent that we needed more than just that, the, the kind of typical bus idea of let's meet these people and plug them into this church over here. It, it didn't work because that wasn't their church. It wasn't their people. It wasn't their context. It wasn't their community. So it became apparent that we needed to move that direction to give them a church for their community, for their people, in their context, in their language. Um, and we started planning Mount Vernon Westside Church of the Nazarene. And, and, and that kind of was the next step for me, um, plugging into that community, learning what it means to be a community, what parish ministry really is all about, all the while not really wanting to be in the church. Um, but there was that tension. There was that tension there that um, pushed me that direction. How did you finally resolve that? So I was I was working bivocationally to support my church planting habit, which I wouldn't have <laughs> called that at the time. Um, but I was working as a security guard at Mount Vernon. Okay. Um, I was on the track to be ordained as a deacon uh, because preaching and churchy ministry wasn't for me. Mm. Um, and and I was I was at my my ordination interview one district license ordination interview, um, and the DS just really pushed me and said, "Have you thought about preaching ministry?" And I said, yes, it's not for me. And he said, well, I want you to rethink it. He said, you work at Mount Vernon. You can take classes for free. Take a preaching class and see what you sit, see what you think. Mm. Uh, so, I, so I did. I enrolled in a preaching class. It wasn't part of the youth ministry curriculum. Um, so it was my first exposure to that, but I fell in love with that. Mm. Um, and came back to my licensing interviews next year and said, you know, I want to switch to Elder Track. I, I, I don't know what's drawing me here, but this is obviously, you know, where I'm drawn. That shifted my whole focus because the elder track suddenly pushes you back into the church life. Yeah. Um, and, and for me, it meant pushing me towards seminary mm. um, the next four years in seminary before coming coming back and, and now serving in a very traditional mm. church model that, that if you'd asked me 20 years ago, I would have said, I don't want anything to do with. So, so break down that journey for me. You go from Mount Vernon. How did you end up at seminary? Where did you go? 
I went to Nazarene Theological Seminary. Um, again, I'm Nazarene. Where else does a Nazarene go? <laughs> sure, um, sure. You know, that's where my professors went. That's where my professors encouraged us to go. Yeah. If you want to be a Nazarene pastor, you go to a Nazarene seminary, and, and it was kind of the decision made for me. I, I, I don't regret it for a minute. Sure. Um, it's, it's maybe an oversimplistic answer, but when you're a Nazarene, that's what Nazarenes do. And, and, and Antonine and I had just gotten married. We moved out to Kansas City, did four years there. Um, we served at St. Paul's, uh, which is a really amazing congregation you know, that lives kind of in two different worlds, mm. you know, caught between the urban core and the, the suburbs, mm. you know, in a very transitioning neighborhood. Um, was the youth pastor there for a couple of years. You know, was mentored by, by some really great people. Mm. Um, and, and, and when seminary was over, you know, it opened the doors for us to, to move back closer to family and, and to really start investing in, in an, our own community. So what, what kind of position did you take right out of seminary? Right out of seminary, I went into the position that I'm in now, which is oh. as senior pastor of, of Toronto Church of the Nazarene. Mm-hmm. Uh, Toronto is a, a really small town, about 5,000 people. Um, on the east side of Ohio, on the Ohio River, my view out my back window is West Virginia. Wow. Um, it's an old steel mill kind of town. We're in the Rust Belt, very industrial blue collar. Um, I've recently added the Stratton Church of the Nazarene as well. So I've got two congregations that I that I serve. It's kind of an experiment to see how that goes, you know, putting two congregations together, but, mm. but two just really tremendous uh, families congregations that, that we get to be a part of and, and to shepherd and, and to mm. pastor. Tell me about that. What is what is a typical week like for you if you're shepherding two congregations? In my mind, I I shepherd one congregation and I approach it that way. Mm. Um, the, the pastoral care, you know, the, the stuff of, of pastoral ministry, for me, I, I, I try not to distinguish them from them. Okay. Um, I love the visitation side of it. I love being, you know, particularly with my senior adults. I mean, there's so much wisdom, uh, and I've I've just really grown to love those folks. So nursing homes, lots of visitation, lots of studying. Um, And and, and the big issue is, you know, part of it is organizational. You know, you've got two organizations you're leading, so there is a little bit extra work on that side to board meetings and all of those things. Um, and, and, And the worship piece has always flowed really naturally. Toronto, when I came 10 years ago, um, worshiped at nine o'clock and Stratton, as long as they've been around, has been worshiping at 11 o'clock. So, um, there was a year where I was their interim and when they, when they got around to calling a full, uh, a, 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 part, a permanent, uh, pastor, they said, right. well, would you just consider staying on? Hmm. Um, so, so it was a real natural fit. We're only about five miles apart and, hmm. and, it, and it works really well for both, both congregations and, and for our family. And, and it's been a real positive thing. Yeah, I love that. So do you just preach, you preach at 9 a.m., you preach at 11 a.m.? Yeah, typically it is the same sermon, both both services. Mm-hmm. Occasionally there'll be some contextual kinds of things that are specific that we do do differently. Holidays are sometimes weird, you know, trying to navigate who gets Christmas Eve this year, right. um, that kind of thing. But but they've been both been really great and, and experimenting together on what it means to, to kind of uh, in, in a lot of ways, they're having to learn as to what it means to share. Mm. And in a lot of ways, they're learning you know, what it is to be one church, you know, because mm. there's a lot of shared kind of things that, that we have to come together for to make it work. And, and, and it's, it's a growing experience. It's a learning experience. It's, like, you know, for, for a lot of us, it's an experiment. And can this work? Can this be a model um, of a way that we can go forward in, in hard economic times? What do we do with small rural churches that can't afford a pastor? Can they partner up? Can it be successful? What advice would you have to a young pastor getting ready to go to a rural church or two rural churches? What things might you say to them? 
be part of the community. Mm. Rural churches are, are uniquely, in my experience, a tight-knit community. Um, the insiders and the outsiders are very clearly demarcated. Mm. And your effectiveness is going to be in your ability to cross that transition from outsider to insider. To, to, it's not a place you're going to come in quickly and change. It's, it, it, it's all about the community and, and is this person a part of our community? And th- is this person really somebody that's from Stratton or really somebody that's from Toronto? Or are they really one of us? Mm. Um, and, and rural ministry is all about becoming one of us. It, it, it's back again to that incarnation, back to that family. Is this person one of us? And that takes time. You, you can't have successful ministry in rural settings quickly. You know, it takes time to become one of them, and you have to become one of them to have, have really meaningful relations and really effective ministries. Mm. Interesting phenomenons that I've seen in, in the rural community is it's a lot easier to plug in outside of the church than inside of the church. Why do you think that um, is? I'm not sure. I, I still process that all the time. You know, but one of, one of the people that I have a really great relationship with is, is, is not one of my parishioners. She's the branch manager at the bank, and, mm. you know, whenever there's needs or issues, I can go to Melissa and, you know, Melissa's going to be the one to buy the popcorn for my kids for this fundraiser or whatever from that fundraiser. And she's just this amazing Toronto lady. You know, one day I came in and I've known Melissa for 10 years now and, and she, she always calls me Pastor Eric and I always tell her, no, Melissa, Eric's fine. She goes, you know, I know I don't go to your church, but you're our pastor in Toronto. And, and, you know, there's that, there's that sense of community and kind of becoming one of the people and, and building that rapport within the community that allows you to then be effective in ministry. Mm, I love that. How do you build relationships with other churches in Toronto? Or are, are there other churches? There are. There's, there's a Presbyterian church, a couple of Methodist church, three Roman Catholic parishes, and a few other you know, various non-denominational independent kinds of groups. Wow. Uh, but it's, it's a very... The joke around town is this is the only community in the world where there's more churches than bars. Um, <laughs> but, and yet, the bars are still better attended. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, the, minister, the ministers in town, you know, work together pretty closely. Mm. You know, some, some great relationships. There's a lot of transition. Um, you know, it, it's interesting that you have to be there and you have to put in the time to be effective. And, and yet the, the turnover is, mm. is really quick. But we work together well. Um, you try to have breakfast on a regular basis, you know, um, community services, you know, we do Thanksgiving together, Ash Wednesday together, Good Friday together. There's usually something else in the fall where it's kind of a community. Oh, it's the um, Festival of the Arts. We have a community festival. Um, and, and so on the Sunday morning of that festival, there's already a big tent set up where they house the, a lot of the festival festivities. So we have a work community worship service outdoors. Mm. You know, we, we, we just try to build that faith community together um, within the community. That's awesome. So I know that you have a son with chronic illness. Yeah, that, that's, it's, a, it's a big part of our, big part of our family. We've got, we've got three kids. Uh, an eight-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a five-year-old. Um, our middle child, um, who's seven, was diagnosed at birth with chronic illness. Uh, he has severe hemophilia. Mm. It's a bleeding disorder that, that causes his blood not to clot properly. So he has he has lots of potential complications. He responds very very well to it to the treatment options that are available, and, and he's as healthy as he's ever been. Things are things are really great. But one of the one of the doors that's opened is, has, has been putting us into another community. Um, the bleeding disorder community is a fairly small, rare community, uh, but it's a very tight-knit community because it's, it, it, it's very 
complicated and very expensive condition. Um, and so the bleeding disorder community is, is kind of a second congregation. It's, it's really opened some cool doors uh, for ministry um, that, that we've just had a really great opportunity to minister in, in that community as well. One of the uh, one of the joys in, in, in ministry is you find these really great non-traditional places to minister outside of the parish, um, and and for me one of those one of those opportunities was was this hemophilia community. Um, we go to a couple different support group meetings each year. Plug there's 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 a fairly small network um, throughout the United States, and and one of the things we do each year is we go somewhere for kind of a retreat support. It's combination conference, support group meeting, retreat, everything all wrapped in one because there's so few people, you know, but there's educational sessions. Um, and so a couple years in, I got an email from one of the organizers that said, you know, we've noticed a lot of people, you know, talking, you know, about things that they would like to see added. And we do, we do physical therapy, we do genetics, we do latest treatments, you know, we do all these different topics, but, but we've noticed a lot of people saying there's, there's not a place to talk about my faith in the context of all that's going on with diagnosis and, and, and intensive treatments and extended hospital stays, how that affects um, our faith. We talk about how it affects our family, how it affects our health, how it affects our marriages. We really don't talk that much about how that affects our faith. Would you be interested in leading um, a session on faith and chronic illness? Wait, wait, how did they know you're a pastor? Were you, you oh, wear your collar um, all the time? Um, you know, it, it's, it's a community, you know, yeah. everybody kind of knows everybody and, oh, I'm, I'm a pastor and he's a pastor. There's a, there's a few of us. Um, gotcha. You know, but, you know, it's, it's just, you know, it comes up in conversation. Right, right, okay. Um, so, so they knew I was. They knew I was a pastor, and, and they they got a hold of me and said, "Hey, we know you're a pastor, you know, and we've had a lot of people talking about wanting to be able to talk about their faith. Would you be willing to facilitate um, a session like that?" So, so I've had a chance. I think at at four different, five different conferences now, wow. um, nationally, to work with with different hemophilia groups um, to talk about, you know, how does this impact our faith, all the way from from very just kind of therapeutic kinds of deal things with coping and grieving up through some big big questions about theodicy and, and what does it mean for us to wrestle with God, you know, in, in, in the midst of, of these kinds of tragedies and con personal conflicts, you know, how do we make sense of those? One of the interesting pieces is is, is that stretched me is the interfaith aspect. Mm. I'm used to working in a Christian context. So, yeah. so it stretched me some of, in some, some serious ways to, to how do we understand these issues in light of other religious beliefs, um, which, which I would have never previously even said, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian theologian, you know, that's what I'm interested in. But that's, it's opened a lot of avenues for thinking that direction. But that question of theodicy, that question of evil is not one that I really ever thought a whole lot about until, you know, I'm in this community and I hear these people asking, you know, why is God doing this to us? Why is this happening to us? Why my child? Um, and, and, and one of the things that just really struck me was was how many answers there are to that question. Um, and working through those in, in, some, in some pretty pretty profound ways for me and, and what, what I realized in, in thinking through those and reading through those is, is these aren't questions new to us, obviously. These are questions that are woven throughout the biblical narratives as well. But in the biblical narratives, they're not so much in the form of questions seeking answers as they are lamenting. I mean, there, there's this there's this powerful theme of lament throughout the scriptures. Um, you know, we, we can look at Job, we can look at Lamentations, we can look at the Psalms. Uh, and, 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 you know, this isn't David on an intellectual quest trying to understand the great mysteries of the world. This is David 
you know, crying out and saying, how dare you? You know, be gone with me. Mm. You know, this is out of control and, and you're to blame. There's some stuff in there that, that, that we're just not comfortable with. Mm. But then as, as I'm reading this, I'm realizing this is, this is my story. These are the questions I'm asking. Me, the pastor, me, the theologian, me, the person that's supposed to have the answers for my people, right. is the person that's in their car weeping, mm. yelling out, blaming, cursing God for what God is doing to my child. Mm. You know, and this discovery of, of, of lament, and there's a whole philosophical tradition behind that. You know, some people call it protest theodicy, some people call it anti-theodicy. You know, and, and a lot of it is, is kind of a renewal movement coming out of the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Jews are wrestling with how can we be faithful to the covenant that God has made with us as a people when God is sitting back there from God's throne room, wherever that is, mm-hmm. watching the genocide of our people and not intervening. Yeah. Where is God then? I mean, we're not talking about a child with hemophilia. We're talking about a systematic extermination of a nation. Yeah. And not any nation, God's chosen nation. And God does nothing. Mm. And here we are. But at the root of all of this is the constant affirmation that I might be mad and I might not understand and it's your fault and you could have done something and didn't and I don't understand that, but you're still my God and I'm still your child. You're still my God and we're still your people. Mm. And we come back again to that family picture that's kept me Nazarene. It's why I'm Nazarene. It's why I'm still Nazarene. You know, so many of us have had opportunities to go elsewhere where maybe we'll fit better, but maybe we won't. Mm. But this is our family. Mm. We don't understand it. We fight sometimes, we get mad sometimes, but we love each other. And we work it out. And while we work it out, maybe we're mad at each other and maybe we don't even talk to each other, but we're still family. And that was freeing for me. You know, to be able to shake my fist at God and to cry out to God and to blame God and to curse God and to do all of those things and to think, you know, I'm not alone in this. Mm. Throughout history, we see, we, we see this, yeah. you know, all the way back into the biblical times, you know, of, of people hurting and God's watching and doing nothing. Mm. Now, we can talk all day about how do we resolve that tension. And the theologian in me maybe thinks that would be a fun thing to try to do. But the pastor in me thinks that the more important thing is to live in it Mm. and to dwell in it and to sit in it and to love God through it. You know, but but that's kind of my story. And and, and it's that story of the guy that should have the answers that always thought he had the answers, realizing he doesn't have the answers and having to be okay with that. And there, there's a freedom in that. There, there, there's a peace on the other side. The conference speaker this morning was talking about lostness as a place where we go to learn the things and gain the wisdom we can't learn or find anywhere else. But when we find it, we always come out on the other side in a better place. And that's lament. That's, that's this melu of life. Of, of living in this moment, living in this pain, living in this struggle, living in the awfulness and the muck and the mire and the messiness, and sitting in it. 
but not sitting in it alone. Sitting in it alongside a community of faith that loves us, that we love. Sitting it alongside it, a Messiah that was crucified, you know, and resurrected from it. Mm. But that still sits with us in it. Mm. And uh, there's a power there. There's a freedom there. There's a, there's a peace in, in being able to sit in the muck and the mire and to know that, that there's victory and, and, and there's power. But Eric, I feel like so many Christians are in search of certainty. What do you, how do people respond to you when you talk about your faith now and what seems like a lack of certainty? I think there's a couple responses. I think one of, one of the responses I often see is, is shock. This is the pastor, right? Um, again, you know, and this is the stuff that shocked me. You know, I shouldn't be having these thoughts. I shouldn't be having these feelings. And, and yet there I was, you know. Here's the pastor saying he questions God. I mean, look, God's not off the hook. You know, if God is who we believe God is, God could step in and prevent a whole lot of stuff that shouldn't be happening. But God doesn't. That sounds almost heretical to some people. And so it, it gets a lot of shock at first. This guy's a pastor and he's saying this stuff. And, and that shock usually turns into um, an introspection. You know, I have to think about that for a while and, and they'll, they'll, they'll take it. And, and uh, you know, and, and then some people will eventually come back and follow that up. And, and, and quite frankly, most of the people that, that I've been open with about this you know, that's kind of where it hangs. It, it, it just kind of hangs there. there. There's a shock that gives way to, I, I need to chew on that for a while. And I think that's probably a pretty natural thing. I think that's probably the best place to leave it. I, I'm not sure, you know, what good it does to... I hope that it hangs there for a long while, because that, that, that's kind of the point, is to live in that uncertainty. At least for me, that's the first step is 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 to to rock those foundations and, and to, to 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 feel free to get away from that certainty. I, uh, a few years ago, I was reading uh, Jaber Crow, and there's this there's this great scene, and and uh, he, he goes off to Bible school thinking he's going to be this pastor, and and he goes away to Bible college, and and he has this one professor. In his interactions with this this professor, this professor just knows everything. And, and it just exasperates him. And, and he finally ends up, in, in the end, leaving the Bible college, leaving ministry altogether, because he concludes that the people who think they have all the answers are exactly the wrong kind of people to be leading us. Mm. It's not about having the right answers. It's about living in the right questions. Um, and that's where I want to live. And, and that's where I hope that the people that I have an opportunity to touch get to live. I hope they can shake free from those those fascinations with certainty that that really I think are are illusory and live in the mystery because it's in the mystery that we find the awe. That's where we have to start building, um, not from knowledge and and, and knowing and, and certainty, but of of mystery and awe and worship. 
Yeah, so, so that's, that's, you know, that's, that's one of the fun little side journeys that God's taken us on is, is, is that journey toward um, embracing that mystery. So I'm, I'm really curious in your journey, how you talk to your son about his chronic illness and, and how those conversations go. Yes, there's a couple conversations that we have, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it's, it's just, you know, helping him understand, you know, clinically, you know, you know, what are the issues? Why does my blood not work the same as everybody else's? You know, and, and because for him, this is a life issue. Mm. He doesn't know another normal, right. you know, it, it's just the way it is. And, and he's, he's seven and, and he's starting to, to know some differences, but it's for him, it's just the way he is, mm. you know, and, and, but there are, there's some, there's some conversations that, that, you know, we anticipate and, and, and that, you know, it, it's been interesting to be able to particularly, um, kind of one of the other big faith and, and chronic illness questions that, that we talk about a lot is that, that idea of healing. Um, you know, we, we deal with the problem of evil and the wise. You know, there's this other side of our faith that talks about healing a lot. And, mm. and, and in our context, a lot of that's the why nots. Mm. Um, because we are part of a tradition that, that talks about faith healing. You know, we have an article of faith on healing. Right. You know, and, and there are those within our denomination who seem fascinated by this charismatic kind of faith healing, you know, packing out the revivals, you know, counting up how many, you know, people um, can now walk that couldn't before, can see that couldn't before. And, sure, sure. you know, that, that's part of, you know, our history and our tribe. Yeah. You know, so one of the one of the things we, we talk about is, is what that means for somebody with chronic illness. You know, what does healing look like in that context? Um, you, you know, and and that really was a question that we started talking about out of necessity, um, because I was approached by by another pastor, you know, and, and said, you know, I have this great healing ministry, and you know, if you would just come and let me put my hands on your son and pray over him, I, I know he'll be healed. You know, I said, well, I've, I've prayed with him and I've anointed him, you know, well, you must not have enough faith and you know, you know how this, this conversation goes, you know, so, so one of the other big areas, you know, in addition to, to talking about that, that problem of evil stuff is, is what is healing really all about? We talk a lot about getting back and, and, and looking biblically at this idea of healing and, and um, one of the things we anticipate talking with him about is is that healing in the Bible isn't about the physical things. Those physical things are signs. You know, the healing that the Bible promises, you know, are, are more rooted in, in those ideas of, of total well-being, that shalom idea, this promise of, of full salvation, this promise of, you know, healing that transcends the physical. You know, it, it's eschatological in nature. We see it over and over again throughout the scriptures. The, these physical healings happen from time to time, but those are always occasions to point forward to something else that really is the main point. Mm. And we, we look at the James passage and, 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 and that, that we love to quote about promising healing and calling on the elders to pray and they will be healed. That's all linked to the confession of sins. It's, it's all rooted in, in the personal wholeness, mm. not in you know, some miraculous physical kind of, of, of thing. Um, we look at the liturgies that go along with those, those healing rituals. They're all eschatologically holistic. So, so that, that's another of the, the avenues that, that we anticipate 
Um, it's, it's also one of the questions I get quite often from the people in the hemophilia community is why hasn't God healed my child? Mm. You know, and, and I think we have to be really careful, especially being part of a faith tradition that includes some of these faith healing kinds of things that are really so, so dangerous mm. for, for people, for the church, um, and for their faith. Um, that we think real carefully about what healing means, what healing looks like, what Scripture promises, and what it doesn't, mm. and how that connects to, to a person's faith. Um, so that, that, that's another side of, of things that we, that we come out. I mean, we talk about the evils and the whys, and we, we talk about salvation and what that looks like, and healing and what that looks like, and, and how maybe the two are more linked than we want to think about. So it really has opened the doors for a lot of, a lot of conversations, both in our family and, and, and within wider communities. I love that idea that healing is more than physical and this and the I mean I think of Jesus you know saying things like just so you know that I can heal sin like let me heal this person's body like as a sign to you as a sign to you I mean I love I love the gospel of John and the way that it's all about those signs and those discourses and and I'm going to do this so that you can see this and know this and that this is a sign for you and and that that whole pattern of signs and discourses and, and and sometimes I Sometimes I worry that we get hung up on the signs and we lose sight of the realities that, that underlie those things. Mm. Um, and, and that's particularly, I think, relevant in my context of, of kind of rural Appalachia. You know, there, there's a strong, you know, kind of Pentecostal, you know, roots in that geographical region as well. And, yeah. and so it's particularly important, I think, for us to understand, you know, some of those things, not only because of... Uh, the health issues that we face, but but some of the cultural realities that are present in in our rural context as well. Mm. What do you what do you feel like are the the biggest differences between urban setting ministry and, and rural ministry? I haven't had a, a huge huge amount of experience in urban settings. Uh, my experience in urban settings is pretty well limited to my seminary years. Mm. Um, I grew up in a small town in southern Ohio. I now pastor in a small town in southern Ohio. I went to college <laughs> at a smallish town in, in Ohio and all of those kind of rural kinds of small town. So, so my urban experiences are, are fairly limited to my four years in Kansas City. Um, a lot of urban and rural ministry in, in my experience, and again, a lot more on the rural side than the urban side, is very similar. A lot of the same issues. Um, and, and I think that's more tied to economical realities um, than, than anything necessarily cultural. Mm. Um, poverty, addiction, abuse, all in very high levels. Unemployment, um, single mothers, all major issues in both settings. I think the difference, at least in my experience, has, has been kind of in that idea that we talked about earlier of insiders. How are insiders accepted? Mm. Or how are outsiders, rather, accepted? Um, my experience is that, that rural ministry takes a lot longer to be accepted. I think part of that is that the rural setting, the small town, you know, it has a long history. Mm. You know, everybody's related to everybody. Everybody goes way back. Mm. 
everybody shares the same story, everybody shares the same narratives, um, and either you're part of that narrative or, or you're not. My experience in, in urban ministry is that it's much more um, transient. People come, people go. There's new characters being woven into this story all the time. Outsiders are a lot more easily accepted. Mm. That, for me, is, is, is a, big, a big difference in, in rural ministry and urban ministry is, is the ability of the pastor to become part of that community. Um, and I think part of that also affects paradigms of you know, my, my experience in, in small town is that it's very inward oriented. Um, there's not a lot of global kind of realities. Everything's very localized. Mm-hmm. Local business, local agriculture. You know, there's, there's almost this sense that what happens on the other side of that hill on our east and another side of that hill on our west it really doesn't matter you know mm. it's 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 this community it's this tight knit and there's a clo- there's a certain closedness to it that i don't sense in in urban settings mm. that that are much more open not only to people but to ideas mm. um, if i had to contrast them i think i would i would talk about openness and closedness mm. and not in positive and negative ways just okay. just in characteristic ways mm-hmm. You know, and, and there's a lot of sense in which for the small town that, that closeness is a, is a big positive. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it protects them. It, it helps them to survive and to thrive and keep some continuity and to maintain an identity. Um, so those, those are all positives for them. You know, so, so I'm not saying that to be disparaging or, or, or to, to make this in terms of one is better than the other. They're, they're, they're just different. And, and I think that's one of the big, big ideas is for my experience is, is that rural ministry takes a lot longer because of, it's much more of a closed culture. Mm. Um, whereas my time in, in urban America, which was admittedly, you know, it didn't take me long at all to be accepted in a completely different culture to which I was a complete foreigner, but I was almost immediately accepted, and mm. it was just different. And, and I, I think the ability to, gav- to navigate some of that closeness and, and to work your way inside and to become part of the community and, and, and to earn the trust and to earn the respect and, and to, to earn you know, the place beside them on the work project, at the job site, you know, wherever it might be. Um, I, I think that's, that's a huge, huge difference. What is your um, favorite part about what you're doing right now, your role or your roles right now? This will probably surprise some listeners, and it would surprise my congregation if they get a hold of this. <laughs> um, I've been accused countless times of not liking old people Mm. it's my favorite part of the job really the time that I spend in the nursing homes the time that I I spend at the hospital the time Mm. I spend sitting with uh, the older gentleman while his wife's in surgery you know stopping in at the house and and hearing the stories about what the church was like 30 years ago sitting in the cafe you know and and talking about what we would be seeing if if I were here you know when the mills were booming um, I was listening to NPR 
just the other day, and, and, and on the Writer's Almanac, they, they had a poem. I, I don't even remember the name of it. Something about a woodcutter, and he changes his mind, and, and, and he talks about the difference between when he, when he was a young woodcutter, he would go out and, and cut down the old trees because they only had a few more years to live left and, and let those young trees grow and be strong. And now that he's, as he's getting older, he finds himself cutting down a lot more young trees and, and letting the older trees enjoy the few years they have because it won't be long before they're left laying prostrate on the ground. Mm. You know, and, and, and there's this growing sense for me of, of we have some just some real treasures in our churches. And I, I, I don't know what in me is drawn to that, to the history of who we who we are and, and the treasures that are the, the wisdom of, of the aged among us, to the beauty of their faith, uh, to the profundity of, of their theology, as untrained as it is. I mean, there's just, there's just a beauty in sitting and, and talking. Um, probably my favorite place to go in the world is, is down to Star's Towing Shop. It, it's that place that every small town has uh, where all the old retired guys sit around the table every morning and drink their coffee and, and tell about the old days and what's going on. And it's, it's the place where, where I can just kind of not be the pastor and, and to just learn about my community and, and be that insider. And I love it. You know, there's, and part of me just, when I, th- when I think about who in our world needs the gospel the most, the elderly are just a hugely growing population that are also increasingly marginalized Mm. they're pushed out there's not room for them they've had their day it's somebody else's day now a lot of them are ignored by their own family I I had a lady in our congregation there was five generations of her family alive she was the, the matriarch of five generations she outlived all her friends, her family was so spread out. When 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 she died, there was there was not even a funeral for her. I mean, she was just kind of this forgotten generation. Mm. And, and I see so many so many of our churches. You know, we're not real sure what to do with our seniors. You know, we want to get the young families in. We've got to gear the ministry towards all these young folks. And you know, and and I don't know what to do with that. You know, when we talk about who are some people that really need the gospel, who are some people I love spending time around, you know, you know, there's a guy in our congregation, you know, we go out and fish, he's an old retired guy, and you know, it's, it's just those moments, you know, interesting things happen in boats, and, uh, and, and you know, we just have so many great stories, but, but to just to sit and tell those stories and, and, and to be a listening ear and, and to give those people some value that, that, that our world and our culture don't give them, you know, it, it's just a blast. Um, and it's part of being that, that family. It's part of working your way to the inside. You know, it's, it's part of, you know, ministry in a rural aging culture. What advice would you give to someone who is nervous about working with older people or isn't sure what to do with themselves listen. when it comes to the older? Listen. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you know, be present. You know, be there. So many would, would tell you that they're, well, they wouldn't tell you probably, but they're lonely. Mm. Um, their friends are friends are dying, you know, and, and they're being left alone. Their families are moving on and busy, and 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 you know, be there for them. You know, um, work with them. You know, they love this church as, as as much as anybody else does. They want to see this church, 
you know, you know, have a future as much as anybody else does, and 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 they'll they'll be supportive. Mm. You know, if you're supportive. Yeah. You know, we've got one one lady in the church. Um, you know, I, I love her to death. I love them all to death, but but she's a special saint. Sure. And uh, you know, whenever whenever it co- we whenever we start, you know, you know, having these kind of, um, we want to talk about some change. You know, and, and so we get everybody together and, and you know, we, we you do do all the stuff that good leadership does. Mm-hmm. You know, you know she says, We don't need to talk about this. We just want the church to be healthy and growing again. You do whatever you need to do. Aww. And you know, it's it's just that's her that that's her opinion. She says, I'm gonna be here, this is my church, I'm not going anywhere. You just make sure it's around for my kids and their kids Aww. and you know. Wish I had fifty of those. Um, there's a tremendous treasure there mm. and uh, a treasure that's often overlooked and, and that, that really honestly is, is one of my favorite parts of ministry. Mm. So the last question I ask everybody is, what inspires you to stay in the Church of the Nazarene? What is it that's keeping you here? They're my family. You know what? We've got great theology. We've got lots of great stuff. But at the end of the day, family is family. Mm. And I want my kids to be part of that family. And I want their kids to be part of that family. You know, and, and that's both the reason that I stay and it's the reason that we work to make the church a healthy place. Mm. If somebody asked me very early on in my ministry, they said, if you weren't a pastor, would you go to the church that you're a pastor at? What did you say? I honestly, I said no. Mm. But you know what? That's the question my kids are going to be asking. Because yeah. at some point they're not going to be the pastor's kids and they're going to get to choose. Yeah. And are they going to find my church to be the kind of church that they would want to keep going to? Are they, is my church going to be the kind of church that wants them to stay, that they want to stay, that they see as their family? Are, are the future generations going to, to, to see this church as their family the way that I did? Yeah. You know, and that's that's a family issue. That that's not an organizational issue. That's not a leadership issue. That's not a polity issue. It's an issue every family goes through. Is how do we build this family? How does this family maintain its identity? How does this family get handed on to the next generations? Mm. So what what keeps me at this point in this congregation is helping this family that I'm a part of now pass the baton to the next generation in such a way that they'll want to take that baton and carry it through their lives. Awesome. If somebody wanted to get in touch with you, um, contact you somehow, ask you questions about something, where can they reach you? How can they find you? Probably email would be best. I'm on Facebook. I'm all over the place. You know, I meet people and I'm like, I think I've seen you on Sacramental Nazarenes. I'm, I'm there too, but, but more personally, my email is eefry, E-E-F-R-E-Y at gmail.com. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you.